we left off last week, just move on into Judges. We're in the end of Joshua. Turn to the book of Judges. And let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, we just thank you once again that you've given us this opportunity to get together and to hear from your word. I just ask that by your Holy Spirit you'll speak to all of us, speak to all of our hearts tonight, and help us to walk more faithfully to you. And we just thank you for your faithfulness to do that and to continue to speak to us. And we just pray that in Jesus' name. So before we read in Judges there, uh, I just want to say by way of introduction, you know, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, that's what everybody talks about right here on the radio and the newspaper about homosexual homosexual marriages, same-sex marriage, they call them. Uh, questions abound. They're kind of abounding with everybody, you know. So what if they pass laws that promise prison sentences to ministers that will preach against homosexuality? That, that will probably more than likely eventually happen. They'll call it hate speech and all that. Or, you know, I heard somebody the other night, they said churches like ours that are kind of independent and don't have the big mother church like the Catholics and a uh, you know, that have been around a while, have set doctrines, even though we've been around a while, I guess. But we're more of a danger than they are, actually, because they can point and say, hey, we've got this written creed. This is what we have never done for centuries on end. And uh, so we'll have to see what happens with all of that. But the question is then, then uh, Jeff and I were talking the other night, you know, I don't know how much longer we'll be able to preach freely in prison. So do you just leave certain passages alone, like he's getting ready to go through Romans? Well, he ain't going to get very far before he's dealing with the whole issue big time, right? You know, so the question is, really, we have to ask ourselves while we're talking, how much do we compromise for the sake of getting along? Now, John Bunyan, I don't know how many of you know about this, but he lived back in the 17th century, the late 1600s, and back then they passed a law that to preach, you had to be ordained by an Anglican bishop and use the common book of prayer, they called it. And you also were only allowed to preach in the state church, the Church of England. But Bunyan was like us. He was a member of an independent church. And those people back then were called nonconformist or dissenters. And so for him to preach outside of the Church of England, which he did, it became illegal. They passed a law that made it illegal. And because of that, he just kept preaching, and they put him in jail for 12 years. Twelve long years that man stayed in jail. Uh, He had six kids and a wife. And what he did in jail to try to help support his family was he made shoelaces. But back then, you know, they didn't have welfare and all this other, I mean, if you didn't have a way to be out and support your family as a man, they just were destitute. And his family, though, some of the nonconformists in that area were nice enough to help his family out. But he had a blind daughter. And could you imagine having to sit in that jail? But all he would have had to do, they said, just quit preaching or just get ordained the right way. And he says, only God can ordain and call a man to preach. And he refused to bow the knee to the state church. And as a result, he's sitting in that prison rotten for 12 years with his kids. Sitting at home with a blind daughter. Nothing to eat a lot of times. But you know, what did we get out of that? Pilgrim's Progress. Did you all know that that is, outside of the Bible, it is the number one all-time best-selling 
book, which he wrote during those 12 years. And there was another group that was a few years before that that they sprang up during the Reformation period known as the Anabaptist. And they endured, I think, some of the greatest persecution that the church or Christians had ever seen. And what was the crime of the Anabaptists? Well, the Anabaptists believed that a person should only be baptized that has consciously repented of their sins and consciously exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So guess who doesn't qualify for that? Infants. And so everyone back then, the Catholic Church dominated the whole Christendom back then. And everybody in the Catholic Church, because I was, is baptized as an infant. And Anabaptists said, no, 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 that, that didn't count. We didn't know what happened back then. And so they said, we need to be re-baptized. And thus they had the name Anabaptist. So, you know, the church back then... America was the grand experiment where we're going to have separation of church and state. Because before that, everywhere in the world, it had always been the church and state were united. And they were united on this whole thing of of infant baptism because that is the way the state kept track of who was around and who was in town and where they were was through these baptismal records. And that's the way it worked. And so they passed the thing with these Anabaptists and said, if you all... Uh, don't it baptize your infants and you get rebaptized. guess what, folks? It's the death penalty for you. And back then, you had to be within a jurisdiction of a city or a state for protection, and the Anabaptists were driven out because they said, no, we're, we're not bowing our knee to the state on this. And they became a hunted people. And the leaders, they would take them out into ice-cold rivers and say, you all want to be baptized again? We'll give you a baptism and literally drown these men. That's the price they paid. But they became hunted. The Catholic authorities, are, I've got a book that talks about different accounts with these people. They were driven out into the woods. They had to live into the woods with no support other than what they could just scavenge out of the woods. And the Catholic authorities would hunt them down out there. They would rape their wives and children. They would take the men and take their, starting with their feet, put them in fires and slowly burn their legs off trying to get them to recant. And I'll tell, you that, well, I'll tell you another conviction they had that they got from the Bible, because this all came as a result of Bible study. It was the Reformation. All of a sudden now the Bible's alive, and these groups saying, hey, baptism, we shouldn't be baptizing infants. That's not scriptural. And they also saw to where Jesus said to love your enemies. It's not scriptural to resist evil. And they practiced non-resistance because they had the Catholics and what were known as the Turks, the Muslims, ruthlessly persecuted and tortured these people, and they refused to fight back. So all they had to do was renounce their thing about water baptism, and all would have been well with them. Seems like a kind of a minor thing. I had a person tell me not that long ago on the phone, well, I just don't see where baptism's that big a deal. It wasn't somebody from this church. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Thousands of these people gave their life for their conviction on that. But here, the Roman Catholics persecuted these people. But listen to what they, one of their theologians said about these people. He said this, as concerns, he's talking about the Anabaptists, their outward public life. Outwardly, he said, they are irreproachable. No lying, deception, swearing, strife, harsh language, no intemperate eating and drinking, no outward personal display is found among them. And then he spoke of their inward character. He 
He said, but humility, patience, uprightness, neatness, honesty, temperance, straightforwardness in such measure. And listen to what this Catholic man says about them. He says all that about them in such measure that one would suppose that they had the Holy Spirit of God. You suppose? I mean, that is like a supernatural life that these people lived. And another person wrote this. The Anabaptist, and you so what my point is, do you think by not compromising and standing on the word, their ranks diminished? The Anabaptists soon gained a large following, drawing many sincere souls who had zeal for God, for they taught nothing but love, faith, and the cross. They showed themselves humble, patient under much suffering. They break bread with one another as an evidence of unity and love. They helped each other faithfully and called each other brothers. They died as martyrs, patiently and humbly enduring all persecution. So I think both cases I just named there are examples of godly people who refused to compromise despite the suffering that came their way and was staring them right in the face about things that most people would think, well, what's the big deal? Just quit preaching and you can be with your family. Mr. Bunyan. So, like I said, a lot of heartache and suffering could have been avoided by small compromises, seemingly small compromises with both. But here's the thing. Both of them had the presence and power of God in their lives. So today, tonight, I want to look at a group of people, the Israelites at this time, that were just the opposite. So we're going to look at their failure to resist compromise and what it cost them. And so the title of the message is The Deadly Art of Compromise. So hopefully we can take to heart what they did, as Paul said a few weeks back. 1 Corinthians 10 said we should learn from their example. That's what we should be able to do, right, and see where they missed it and so we don't make the same mistake they did. So... In Judges 1, we're there. Now, last week we studied the last two chapters of Joshua, which we said it was the last words of a dying man that he gave them. And he admonished them, what? To put away all false gods and serve the Lord only. And the people fully agreed with him, didn't they? They said, that's, no, that's what we will do. We will serve the Lord and him only. And so that brings us to Judges 1. And we're going to see how they carried out this life after Joshua died. So... Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Judges, it says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God has requited me. 
and they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. And it goes on to talk about all the success that Judah had, that God was with them. It goes on to talk in the next few verses about Caleb, that God gave Caleb the land he was promised and took it, and everything's going well. Now, Judah had Simeon right in the middle of him at that time, and so they kind of teamed up together and said, we'll help each other out. And so it went well with both of them. Look in verse 17, it said, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites, the inhabitants of Zephath, and utterly destroyed it, and the name of the city was called Hormah. And from there on out, it goes downhill. So look in verse 21. And here's how the other tribes fared. Verse 21, the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Go down to verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and her towns, nor Tanaak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her town, nor the inhabitants of Iblium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor of Akzib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anath. But he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. For they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Sha'albin. Yet the land of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. And the coast of the Amorites was from the going to Akribin, from the rock, and upward. So if you're paying attention, now we didn't read every word out of that chapter, but we read most of it. And if you were paying attention you would have known a steady progression from, I will say, almost complete obedience to what God had required with Judah and Simeon down to where they weren't, it was unbelief, disobedience, and fear by the time we get to the end of that chapter in verse 34 with Dan. It's a steady progression downward. And that's the progress of this entire book. So look here, look in chapter 1-1. Look what we have, just to show you this. So Judges 1-1, it says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? So what do we have there? What, What are they doing? They're saying, hey, they get together, all the children of Israel, and it says they inquire of the Lord. What do you want us to do? That's the way this book starts off. Turn to the end of this book and look how it ends. Verse 
And this book is a continual downhill plunge for the nation of Israel from 1-1 clear to this point. Now look in Judges 21-25. So it goes from their asking the Lord, seeking God, what should we do? And look what it says in verse 25. And in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So they go from... Doing what, God, what do you want us to do? So, well, we'll just do what we think is the best thing to do. I mean, they were in utter apostasy by that point. And it leads all the way to Ichabod is what you have when you get over into 1 Samuel. It picks up into that. Ichabod, God had left them. The ark left the nation. God's presence. And they were basically a literal Sodom and Gomorrah when you read the last few chapters of Judges. It's a steady downhill decline. And also, if you notice this, I'm just kind of giving you a little background, but the godliness of the judges, the men who led the nation, went on a decline too. So the first guy you have, Othniel, he was a good and righteous man, the first judge that God raised up. And the next one, Ehud was a good man. Deborah was a good woman. But then you get into Gideon, and Gideon's a mess. He, he reflects the, the nature of the people, and he needed a lot of grace. And it doesn't flat out say it, but I think he needed so much grace, I don't even think he was saved when God first met him. And then when you get into the last two judges, I mean, there's 12 judges, but there's six of them that the Bible spends a little bit of time talking about. And when you get down to Samson and Jephthah, they were not exactly the poster boys of morality. They had some major problems. But here's the thing. You read this book, and the root of the problem, all that this nation had that led them all the way down to being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, started right here in chapter 1. And you know what the root of their problem was? Compromise. So if you go back... Back to Joshua 23 just briefly. I just want to go back over what he had told them they needed to do to conquer the land and have God with them. And we saw that in chapter 23. I don't know if you remember, I said there was three conditions for Israel to take the land. And the first one is there in Joshua 23.6, and that was you've got to be courageous to keep the law. And aren't we going to need that today? I mean, man, they needed it then. You've got to be courageous to take a stand on what the law says, no matter what the consequences are. And then in verse 7, the other one was, don't get mixed up with the nations, he told them. You have got to be a separate people. And the last thing in verse 8 was, you have got to cling to the Lord in love and serve Him. Those were the three conditions. And then we ended by saying, then He called them to make a commitment based on all of that, didn't He? And I, if you don't mind, I'd just like to read that again, beginning in Joshua 24, verse 15. And it says this, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Joshua told them, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites where you're dwelling right now. But he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up 
and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out, drove from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwell in the land. Therefore, because of that, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, I'm warning you, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God and a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he has done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, oh, no, that's not us you're talking to. We will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, oh, yeah, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, told him, put away the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So the people had made a solemn vow, hadn't they? That they're going to follow the Lord and obey the law, put away all the false gods and serve the Lord God only. Well, what had they done when they said, we, we're committed to obeying his law? One of them, we're going to meet all those conditions. We'll be courageous to keep the law. We'll put something there and turn back to Deuteronomy 7, if you don't mind. Because here is what they've committed themselves to do. This is part of the law. This is part of what it would mean to obey the Lord. So in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5, it says this, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither you go to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, you will smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. And so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Now look there, we're in Deuteronomy 7. Look in verse 2 at the very end. One of the things he said to do is you smite them, utterly destroy them. And what does he say there? Show them no mercy. Well, let me ask you, what does show no mercy means? Well, maybe I can illustrate it this way. When I was about 13, 14 years old, I had this buddy that had moved out to a farm, and they had chickens out there on this farm. So the mom said, hey, you know, if uh, told me and another friend of mine that were out visiting, if you guys want, want to take a chicken home, I'll give you, a, you guys can each have a chicken and kill it and defeather it and take it home. Oh, that's great. So they sharpened the axe, they gave me the axe, had a little stump there. That old chicken, I mean, he was real... Just took his head out like that, and I got that big eye looking up at me. And I had that axe there, and I'm thinking, it's almost like I felt sorry for that chicken, like he's asking for mercy. And I thought about that for a second. I thought, you know what? If I have mercy on that chicken, I won't have chicken soup when I get home. Whack! No mercy. I had to kill my friend's chicken because he couldn't do it. 
Well, that chicken, it was a bloody mess. That thing's flopping all around. Anybody's ever cut a chicken's head off? There's blood flying everywhere and da-da-da-da-da. That's what no mercy gets you. It's kind of a mess. A little gruesome. I've never done anything like that. But guess what? That's a chicken. I think it'd be a little harder to do that, to show no mercy to a man, don't you? Don't you? I do. And I think Saul found that out. You know, 1 Samuel 15, God sent Saul to do what? He says, I want you to go and you utterly destroy the Amalekites because they hadn't treated my people right, and this is judgment on them. They weren't a good people, none of them. And he says, I want you to utterly wipe them out. But it says that Saul did this. It said he spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen. And so Samuel confronts him. He said, why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul's like, what are you talking about? I did obey the voice of the Lord. That's what he said. I obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I brought Agag, and I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And Samuel told Saul this, because he compromised. He says, you are, re- you are rebellious and stubborn. And he said, your sin is like witchcraft because you're deceiving yourself and these people into thinking that you have obeyed my voice and you haven't. Because all you did, you killed everything that you didn't care about. But the stuff that would profit you, you weren't willing to obey the Lord. And you kept the best of the sheep and the oxen and this king. And isn't that the way we do a lot of times? We are quick to obey I mean, for me, I could have cared less about celebrating Christmas. It just wasn't that big a deal for me. That was nothing for me to give that up, my marijuana, all that, you know. But there's been other things. It's like, okay, are you willing to obey on that? You're willing to give this stuff up that you don't care about that seems like a big deal, right? But isn't that the way we do a lot of times? We compromise in our obedience and kind of draw the line. So Samuel, he says, hey, bring Agag here. And it said, Agag came trembling. And he says, oh, surely. What did he say? Surely the bitterness of death is past. And what's he doing? He's looking at Samuel. He's pleading for mercy. And what did it say? It says, Samuel took a sword and just hacked him to pieces. Because what is better, to have mercy on our sin or to obey the Lord? Right? And Samuel told him, he said, as your mother, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord. He's showing his, this is what obedience before the Lord did. And that's what Israel, back in chapter 1, that's what they should have done. That was the same commandment to them. Same thing they should have done to the Canaanites, wasn't it? And it's the same way as I just said, we're to deal with our sins before God. So, pornography. Ah, is that an issue in your life? I mean, how does Jesus say to deal with it? Does he tell you to just kind of taper off of it? I mean, I've read books. i got books that were from my school. I'm just like, to me, they're worthless because they hardly talk anything about Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, this is how you deal with lust and pornography, and they're like, well, hey, you know, if you slip and you miss it, don't worry about it. Everybody's human and all that. How far is that going to get you? Because you're slipping and missing it every day then, if you take that kind of attitude. And Jesus said, no. He said, you better pluck your eye out. 
It cuts your hand off. Whatever that sin that is so precious to you, that is so dear, the one you really like, not the ones that are easy to get rid of because you don't really care about them that much. Those, those sins that are so precious, just like your right eye, your right hand, and your right foot, you cannot get around very well without those things. It's a major handicap. So those things that are so precious, he says, you had better cut them off. You better cut that agag to pieces because Jesus himself said, if you don't, and believe me, I mean, I know pornography has got to be an issue with people. I hear too many reports about it. And it's too available on the Internet. But he says, you want to keep doing that? And you think nobody's seeing God sees it? And Jesus said, he sees your heart. You will end up in hell. That is what he said. And so what do we watch? I mean, how do you watch movies that have pornography in them? You think you're immune to that? You think those images aren't coming up? Married or not married? We're not designed to work like that. You know, I one time had somebody laugh at me. I worked in downtown Columbus. And I mean, downtown Columbus, Ohio, in the summertime, women don't like to wear a lot of clothes. And I told this person, I said, you know what? I said, I literally will walk and look at the concrete. Because I do, I mean, I can't help the first glance, as they said, but the second one, I don't want to have to help any of them. I don't even want to get sucked into that. And they mocked me about that. They just thought that's hilarious. Why do you have to go to that extreme? Well, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? To pull your eyeball out like Jesus said, that sounds pretty extreme to me. But he's saying if you want to deal with it, you can't compromise with that sin. It won't work. And you'll see with Israel when they compromise, a little compromise drug them all the way down. And that little bit of pornography you're looking at, it's a girl in a bikini, she's not naked. So what? You're still lusting. It's going to drag you all the way down potentially. Or, since everybody likes me so much now, what about dating? Oh, you're like, what about dating? Let me just ask you, how far do you go in that dating relationship? Because I've heard people here talk about, well, yeah, we thought we could do the neck in and da-da-da-da-da, and it went too far, and we had to repent. And, and that's people that are now married that I respect. But I'm saying they told me I had to deal with that. So how, how much do you think you can control all that? I think the Israelites, they put these people in tribute, tribute for slavery because they thought they could control them and their gods. And guess what? They couldn't. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Flee it. Fugo is the Greek word. I got the little Greek word in there. I haven't done that in a while. That word means to flee, to seek safety in flight. To become safe from danger. That's what that word means. And he says, you need, you're in a dangerous situation. He says, you need to flee fornication, sexual immorality. Don't even get close to it. That's what he's saying. That's saying you need to just cut that stuff off. Or you may be in trouble. Because if you hang around and compromise, young man or young woman that's here, you will probably very well be compromised, as they say. And here's the thing. I know the way this kind of stuff works because when it's not the cool thing anymore, not to date, not to hold, and because everyone's doing it, no one wants to be the uncool person. I've been there. I know how that works. Who wants to be the uncool person? Oh, no, I'm not going to kiss behind the barn. Oh, you're not? I mean, no one wants to be that person. But don't we sometimes need to be that person? And we got a case right here in Judges where somebody had to be that person, and he made it into Hebrews 11. Gideon. So if you all would, turn over to Gideon, uh, Judges 6. I want us to see this. 
Because I'm saying not compromising and staying faithful to God is not always easy. And so we should take encouragement from this. So we got Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. Ah, Let's go up to verse 22. It says, And when Gideon perceived, so God appears to him, an angel of the Lord. And he perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. And I think that's when he first received the peace of salvation. He gets saved here. Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Oprah and the Abizarites. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, so here's his first act of obedience. Take thy father's young bullock even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father has, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household, and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. And then the men of the city sent unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die. Because he has cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said to all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is still morning. For if he's a god, let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has thrown down his altar. Now, that took some guts, didn't it? Have you ever, parents, have you ever had something where your children, you're getting ready to do something or you've done something and your children said, I don't think that's right, Dad. That takes some guts, doesn't it? And I've had my kids do that. And I appreciate it. I really do. But sometimes you've got to take a stand. And you can fault Gideon all you want to for the fact he did it at night. But the fact of the matter is God didn't tell him when he had to do it, did he? And the fact of the matter is, he did it knowing that that was the predominant Baal worship was where it was at. A fornicating religion that everybody was enjoying. And Baal says, you're not going to enjoy it here with my dad's altar. It's going, I'm burning it. I'm going to take the actual wood you all are using to worship. And it's going to be what I'm going to sacrifice on. And I'm building God an altar here. That took some guts. But he did it. And guess what? He was saved and it showed because he was willing to take that stand. And young person, if you are saved, you should be willing to take stands for the Lord. That should be, that's a good sign you're saved when you're doing that. Not willing to go along with everybody else. So let's go back to Judges 1 1. And look what it says here it says, After the death of Joshua, it came to pass. 
And here's the thing. Everything in this book is given in light of the death of Joshua. There are many times in the Bible where it talks, it says Moses died. And then here you've got a whole new thing going on with Joshua. Right? And here Joshua dies. And guess what? They're heading into a new phase of their history, of their life, aren't they? Their leader that's been there, that's led them into this promised land, that has led them into these battles, is no longer with them, is he? It's a new experience for Israel. They're in the promised land now without their leader. And what will they do? And I'll tell you what we see here is, look in verse 2. They asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Verse 2, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so here's one thing we see on this. Their leader had died, but God's presence and leadership didn't die with him. Did it? And we need to remember that. So Judah, the Lord was with it, says Judah and Simeon. says that several times in there in verses 1 through 19. But then guess what happens? Towards the end of Judah, even Judah, as faithful as they were with almost all of what God said, the problem begins to surface in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. And it says, the Lord, there it is, the Lord was with Judah, and he drave, drave out the inhabitants of the mountain. But then it says, but Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And while well, you're sitting out there thinking, well, you can't win them all. I mean, you know, they, they did pretty good. They got 99% of it. What's the one? What's the big deal? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is. Turn back to Joshua 17. I'll show you what the big deal was. Joshua 17. In verse 17, here's what Joshua had told the children of Israel, specifically Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. It said, verse 17, Joshua 17, spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and has great power. You shall not have one lot only. Where, do, where is their power coming from? It's the Lord, right? That's what he's telling them. But look what he says. But the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites. And what does it say there? Though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. And so that's the difference right there between most of Israel and Joshua, right? Because he had faith in the Lord God. It didn't matter what the enemy had. He says, we're strong because of the Lord. And he says, you can drive out those iron chariots. And they forgot all about it. So back over in Judges and Judah, verse 19, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. So here, because of their unbelief and disobedience, they allowed some of those inhabitants to remain. And here's what the point I'm trying to get at is. Based on what Joshua said and what the Lord had already repeatedly said to them, it wasn't that they couldn't. It's that they didn't want to, isn't it? It's not that they couldn't have driven out those iron chariots, but for whatever their reason was, they didn't want to. And they let them stay in disobedience to the Lord. And it's downhill for Israel from there on out, one after another. Look in verse 21. 
The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And verse 34, they not only didn't drive them out, the Amorites are driving the Danites wherever they want to put them. And so what was their motivation? you got to ask yourself, why didn't they drive these people out? What was their motivation for letting them hang around? Look in verse 28. What does it say there? And it came to pass when Israel was strong. So it wasn't a matter of their weakness, was it? That's why he's saying that there. They easily could have driven them out. But what does it say? That they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Because here's the thing. It seemed to be, just like with Saul, to their advantage not to obey the Lord. Because they got free forced labor. Free slaves. That's why they didn't drive them out. So look at it this way. You got one of those tribes, it, and this happens with, with some with Judah. They would take a town. There's several towns. They just utterly destroyed them, and they went in and possessed it. Let's say they put their fences up. But what do you have going on here? That tribe goes in there. There's nobody else there but the tribe. So then who does the, the plowing? Who does the planting? Who does the harvesting? Who feeds the horses and the cattle and the sheep and the donkeys and whatever all else? They do, don't they? So here they're sitting there in their property, and they look over, and there's, you know, Brother Benjamin. And they're sitting there thinking, well, look at Brother Benjamin over in his place. I mean, he's up on his porch. He's, he's drinking some fig tea with ice. And he's sitting there watching all those Canaanites out there slaving and plowing and harvesting and feeding the animals, and he's not having to do a thing. What, what are we doing? We're stupid. He's the one that's got his act together. I think we misread the law of Moses. And it just was a domino effect. They, all of them, that's what they're doing. They're thought, well, we'll put these Canaanites to, to tribute, to be our slaves. We're smarter than that. And you tell me that that doesn't happen in our way of thinking sometimes, right? Now, here I am. I'm renting this house. i got to move every six months. All my money's going down the drain in rent payments. When it's all said and done after 20 years, I won't have a thing to show for it. You know, at least, you know, if I get a loan and I'm making payments, when it's all said and done, I'll have my house paid for. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's Canaanite logic. What I would call pragmatic logic. The only problem is the Bible still says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And that's the truth. Why am I enduring all this pain going through this trial, trusting God? Why am I doing that? I mean, one visit to the doctor and a little bit of medication, and it's all over. But it still says in James 5, is there any sick among you call for who? Elders of the church. And it says the prayer of what will do what? Prayer of faith will heal the sick. And how do they get raised up? You know, 
And it still says, I believe in Exodus, I am the Lord that heals you. And I'm not trying to stand up here and be Mr. Bad. I'm really not. But I'm going to tell you, if I got sick tomorrow and went to every hospital in Louisville to get treatment, it's still true. Because the Bible says it. It really does. That has not changed. And why do I got to sit here, you say to yourself, and take this abuse? Because nobody else does. Everybody I know, man, they just let them have it. But the Bible still says what? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, doesn't it? And he says, so your enemy's giving you grief? What are you supposed to do? Feed him. Meet his needs. Do the very thing you don't want to do. But you're saying, man, nobody in this land does that. They take Everybody takes somebody to court if they get done over enough. And is that what the Lord tells us to do? I mean, we this didn't originate with me at all. I'm glad it didn't. But that's a problem, isn't it? It really is. Now, look, you all are saying, oh, you're all picking on. You know what? Those are temptations I've had. That's what I wrote down there. I'm, I'm not picking on any of you. I had to deal with all those thoughts and temptations in my life. I rented houses for a real long time. And I've been in some real pain where I'm looking at heathens working and I'm thinking, man, their legs are working fine. They don't serve the Lord. And my dad's telling me, hey, I talked to a doctor saying you could get fixed up pretty quick. I mean, it's a real temptation. So, you know, I'm talking to myself. But look, look at Psalm 73. This is not new to us. This is as old as the Psalms. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 begins, verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Can we say amen? Amen. But as for me, he says, ha, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Because I'm looking at the foolish. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. But they're corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out on them. And they say, how does God know? Is there no knowledge in the Most High? Behold, look look at this. These are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they increase in in riches. They're like, this is not fair. And look, he goes on in verse 3, Oh, truly, I've cleansed my heart in vain. It was a waste of time. And I washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was just more than I could handle. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely you did set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into destruction as in a moment They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. I was foolish and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. You have holding me by my right hand. You shall guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Because he says, this is all that matters, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. You have destroyed all them. What does it say? That go a whoring from you. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And verse 17 says, man, I'm having a problem with this. I seem like I'm the only one suffering trust in the Lord. And the wicked seem they can do whatever they want to. And he says, until verse 17, God showed me. I went into the sanctuary and he spoke to me and he said, then I saw their end. Because, you know, when you look at Judges 1, it appears at that point that most Israel is prospering. They've got these slaves working for them. They've taken their tribes, have all taken the areas for the most part that God has given them. Right? they got free labor. Things are going great. And somebody could be saying, man, why don't I do what they do? Compromise like that. Look how well it's going for them. But then if you read that book, like I said, you get down to the end and see how good it's going for Israel. Because of their compromising. Short-term gain, long-term misery. And that's what we need to see. So just because a small compromise brings immediate relief or pleasure, it's not going to matter in the end. And I'm saying I've seen too many people that it's just a little bit of a compromise on a conviction that they had. And next thing you know, they are way out there. And it's only the grace of God that can bring them back. And sometimes they don't come back. Because it's like Henry Blackaby said, you're walking on the Lord's path. You don't just start go clear out away from him immediately, do you? You just start going a different direction. But as long as you keep, and you're just a little bit away from him. wouldn't take much to get back at that point when you begin. But then you keep going that wrong way, and God's way is going that way. And before long, you are way out there in no man's land. Long way to come back. And this, I thought this was interesting. Luke 16.10, it says this, He that is faithful in that which is least is. I, I talked about, preached this at, at school way back when, and I had this underline. I was really looking at this. It says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in that which is much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So you're kidding yourself to think you can be unjust and compromising in a little thing and that you'll you'll stay firm on the big things. That's not what the Bible says. Luke 16.10. So back to Judges, what's, what's the result of this compromise that's happened here in chapter 1? And look in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and it says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I had, this is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to them. He said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
But verse 2, he says, You shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So, hey, I'll tell you, if all of us would just get quiet long enough, we could let our consciences speak to us on how we have wedded ourselves to the world in ways we know we shouldn't, right? And when you do that, can't you hear the voice of the Lord saying, why have you done this? You know, when you cried out to me on that day, you wanted to be saved under the conviction of sin, and I freely forgave your sin and gave you peace in your heart. You knew all was well. And then after that, you prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I gave you that freely. Gave you power to walk with me and to live above sin. And hasn't God says, haven't I promised you all the benefits of the kingdom, love, joy, and peace? And he would say, so why have you done this? Turn over to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2. Beginning in verse 7. And he's in essence saying the same thing here. He says, and I brought you into a plentiful country. God's saying to Israel, to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine inheritance an abomination. And the priest said not, where's the Lord? And they that handled the lot, they didn't know me. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. And wherefore, God says, even despite that, he says, I will yet. Plead with you, saith the Lord, and not only you, but with your children's children will I plead. He said, just pass over in the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto Kedar and consider and see if there be any. He says, just look around the whole world, he's saying. In verse 11, he says, has any nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit saying they've got worthless gods. They've got God Almighty on their side. They've exchanged him for nothing that won't profit. He says, verse 12, You should be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Oh, how many times have we done that? Forsaken the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power and presence of his life through the Holy Spirit, and forsaken his love that it says in the Bible is beyond all knowledge. Forsaken that, and instead spending time with the cisterns of this world, which can have nothing satisfying. And let me just say it this way. If you could go to a sporting event, whether your kid is participating or not, and you would rather be at that 
then at a meeting where the presence of God is manifest, you don't know the Lord. Because there's absolutely no comparison. And that's the danger of growing up in a church like ours. Especially for the young people. So you can have parents that know the Lord if you're a young person in here. You can hear sermon preach, sing songs. You can go to Fujin camp and say a Fujin prayer and still not know the Lord, right? Because go back to chapter 2. And it says this, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath Herez in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gaish. And also all, now look at here, verse 10, all the generations that were gathered unto their fathers and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Now when it says that they knew not the Lord, it doesn't mean when they're saying that they'd never heard of him. It doesn't mean they couldn't know him. And it doesn't mean they weren't religious. But you know what it means? They had no interest in him. What do we need the Lord for? We've got Baal. We've learned all about Baal, and he's given us good crops and livestock. You know, at least that's what my uh, buddies in the Canaanite Camel Club tell me. And they pretty well got me convinced of that. What do we need the Lord for, they would say. And they didn't know the Lord. And when it says they knew not the worst which he had done for Israel, that doesn't mean they'd never heard of the Exodus and all the judgments and miracles that he did to bring them out of the land. It doesn't mean that he'd never heard, they'd never heard the testimony of the parting of the Jordan River or they hadn't heard the story of Jericho miraculously falling down. It doesn't mean that they hadn't heard any of that. It, what it means is they couldn't care less. That's just old people's stories they like to tell about their past. And right now, all I care about is this cute Canaanite girl in her skinny jeans in front of me. That was the problem with this generation, saying they didn't know the Lord or His works. They just didn't care about the Lord. And so how many times have we heard, you can't make it to heaven on your parents' faith? We hear that. We've heard that quite a bit. Or your parents' testimony. So every generation has to make the Lord their God and their hope. Don't we know that? Almost goes without saying. But godly parents, and here's where I think we've missed it in a lot of ways, parents. We have a responsibility, though, still to let our children know of the Lord's ways through His Word and through our testimony by devotions. And I know some people have done that. But the ones I've seen that their parents were faithful in doing that, those kids... They have a respect for the Lord and they have a respect to trust the Lord because of their parents' testimony and because of the word their parents have put in them. And that's a great neglect not to do that. And I know we've looked at a few places, if you don't mind, turning to Psalm 78. Or just listen real good.
Psalm 78, it says this. Verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generations to come the praises of the Lord in His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers It's a command. He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. That the generation to come might know them. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Why? Verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And here's another reason you don't want them to be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, they're armed and carrying bows, but what did they do? They turned back in the day of battle, and they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had Showed them. So it's only, I'm saying, the message tonight is the art of compromise. It is only by a generation coming to know the Lord for themselves that they are not going to compromise. So, but I would say it helps a whole lot when a, when a person has godly parents that trust the Lord and teach them what the Word says from a very young age. And guess what happens then? You don't have to talk people into trusting God. They want to. And I wrote down here, you know, Jay, I, I could bear, I was, uh, I think I was at prison and, and I didn't get to hear, I heard very little of when he shared that testimony about his friend Tim. That his wife, he sent me the email, his wife sent an email describing everything when they trusted God for their son. And I mean, that was serious. I mean, real serious, to the point the boy is in so much pain. I don't want to go through the whole thing. But I'm listening to that. I mean, every time I've read it, I've cried because I think, what a testimony. It just, to me, somebody, to me, that's the next generation, so to speak. And I don't like this divide between generations in in, in a lot of ways because we're all one body here. But still, that generation, to hear that testimony of that young man trusting the Lord, watching his child suffer with that pain, and him and his wife both holding on. I mean, that to me, I'm like, that, that is just something else, isn't it? And so it, it tells me it can be that way. And I'm saying they know the Lord. And I don't know, his, I don't know him or his parents. But I can almost guarantee you he watched his parents walk through trials trusting God for healing. And they raised them that way and spoke the word to him. And they had a church that supported them in that trial is what it says in that email. And listen to this. This even more than that speaks to me of the heart of this family. The wife writes this at the end, His Tim's wife. Although this is lengthy, meaning her email, it seems so brief compared to the work God did in our hearts. And that's what she's praising God for. Oh, it was a terrible trial. So glad, my little boy. But look at the work God did in our hearts. And when you compromise, he can't do that work. But they didn't. And they saw his faithfulness and allowed him to work in them. And they experienced God's presence and power in more ways than one. 
She says it would be hard to list and describe every area he changed us. And that, to me, that is encouraging. And I know some of you people, young people here, that's the way you... It needs to be that way. You need to experience the Lord for yourself. Trust God all the way, like they did. Now, there's a young man in prison that came up to me the other day, just got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I mean, some of these guys, they tell me they're saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, man, I'm having trouble believing you. But this guy, his face is just radiating with joy. And I'm saying people that are that way, that they know the Lord themselves, you don't have to talk them into stuff. And I had just made a passing comment about trusting God for your finances and not making your needs known. He comes up after that. He says, man, is there anything you can give me, any books you could give me I can read so I can do that? And I said, yeah, I know there's one I brought in here. It's in that library right next door there. Next to the Bible, it's probably the best book you'll ever read about trusting God and learning how to get answers to prayer. George Mueller's autobiography. So he takes that thing and devours it and comes back. He says, man, that was great. You got another one? And I'm like, yeah, there's another one, Bevington. But I'm saying, you don't have to beg people like that to trust God. And I know a lot of the young people here have read Bevington. And that, that's encouraging to me. They had a group in here who was just studying his life. Put it to practice. You can live like him. It doesn't matter what you see going on around you. It works like I like to say, you know, if I get too caught up in what I see going on around me and other things, it can mess your faith up. And so I like to do what a guy said, fellowship with dead people. You know what? I like to read people of old that truly trusted God, that were totally sold out, like the Anabaptists, like George Mueller, like Bevington, like John G. Lake. That's encouraging me because then I think, well, you're not as odd as you might think you are as the devil's trying to tell you. It's happened that way all through church history. Or our pastor's testimony. I mean, he lived what he walked. But what will be the end of those, back to judges, that refuse to do that? That refuse to know the Lord for themselves? And also that generation were gathered under the fathers. There arose another generation, verse 10, Judges 2.10, after them, which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And then, look at verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them. And bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. And I've known, again, too many people that were on fire for God, started off right, and they forsook the Lord. And you watch their lives. And it's not just because they leave our church here. That doesn't put somebody under a curse. But they forsook the Lord. And you watch their lives and you see that is to your horror. The things happening to them, they don't even realize it a lot of times. It's the hand of the Lord is against them. One disaster after another happens in their lives. God's trying to wake them up and they can't tell. And it says they were greatly distressed. How many people do we know like that? And I can't think, honestly, 
That is about the worst thing that I could have said about me or anyone is that the hand of the Lord is against you. Oh, you don't want that. Let anybody else be against you, but not the hand of the Lord. So we can learn from this. I want to look at one thing in chapter 3, that the trials and temptations your parents faced, young people, you will face too if you stay faithful to God. And that's because God wants to teach you how to do spiritual warfare like he had to teach them. So look over in chapter 3. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know and why to teach them war, at the least such as before they knew nothing thereof. Namely, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, Sidonians, and Hivites, that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto the entering of Hamath. And they were, here's verse 4, and they were there to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken under the, to the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their father by the hands of Moses. So it's there to teach them warfare and to see whether they are going to be obedient or not. That's why God left those nations. And that's why just because your parents went through trials, you're going to go through the same types of trials. So you can prove yourself like they did. And so you can learn warfare. Sometimes you you got to grow up and stand on your own, young person, and see God's faithfulness for yourself. Because I think here, I think we're entering into a phase in this church with all of us here, old and young alike, and we're going to have to be ready to engage in spiritual warfare like we have never known before. And we need to be willing to fight and not compromise. Because for them, they were heading into what? What was the promise to them? It's Canaan land, right? And what is it that we're promised as New Testament Christians? What did Jesus come preaching? It's all through the New Testament. The kingdom of God. He says it's here and it is coming. Read Revelations 20 and 21. It is something worth fighting for. It really is. But it is going to be a fight that you're not going to be able to compromise on or you'll lose the fight. Matthew 11:12 says, And from the days of John the Baptist, Jesus said, Until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. It's going to be warfare. Not going to be for the faint-hearted. Luke 16, 16, it says, And the law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. Let me say, there are trials. If you can't see it on the horizon, I mean, it is fastly approaching. So this was the message I was going to preach last week. Well, last week we looked at something else. And after hearing what Mike Guthrie said, I hope you all were listening. He made some really good points about separation coming up. But there's trials coming to us in this world, in this country, that are going to test our commitment to the limit. I'm convinced of that. And so we need to do what? We need to separate ourselves from all these Canaanite people and cultures now, yeah, obviously, you know, I'm not saying don't talk to people, become a hermit. We know all that, right? But we have got to separate ourselves from that culture and have no mercy on their influence on our lives. Cut it off. Avoid movies just because everyone's going and seeing them if you know they're not good. Because, listen, here's an end time verse for you. Revelation 18 says this. 
And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. He's saying, come out from her and don't partake of her sins, the wicked Babylon. And so you don't have to partake of her plagues. So back to Judges, it's saying, hey, the warning stands for all of history in the book of Judges. Compromise leads to Sodom and Gomorrah, ultimately, verse chapters 18 through 21. So we must not compromise with the culture we live in. It's evil. Believe me. You don't have to believe me. You can look. The people, their ways, their gods. And if we do, it will be to our eternal ruin. But here, we have every incentive, don't we, to separate ourselves to walk with the Lord and to, to rid ourselves of all the evil that's in this culture that we need to. Last verse. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. We'll read this and that'll be it. But I do want to read this. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6 beginning in verse 14. And Paul writes this. He says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement do you, the temple of God, have with idols? For you, us, we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, because of that, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse 18, and I will be a father unto you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Verse 7, it really should be continuing. He says, having therefore those promises of God being our Father, us being His sons and daughters, and that He will walk in us. He says, having those promises, dearly beloved, here should be our motivation. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. No compromise. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again for the warning you've given us. And we just thank you that we can learn from this example of Israel. That their compromise led to their defeat and their ruin. And Lord, I just ask for your grace on myself and this entire church, Lord, that... You will continue to speak to us. You'll draw us from the world. You'll convict us of our worldly associations. You'll open our eyes to see how we're being drugged down spiritually wherever we are. All of us individually, Lord, I just ask you'll do that for us and that you'll bring us closer to you and that we can be people that spend time with you in prayer alone and in your word. And we know that you are walking with us every day and your hand is on our lives for good. And I just ask that you'll cleanse us from everything that is worldly and filthy so we can experience that, all of us here, Lord, young and old alike. And I just thank you and pray that you'll do that for us all. And we thank you for this word you've given us tonight in Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, everyone can stand up. Amen. So, since we don't have a song, if everybody would just shake somebody's hand and just greet them, say you're glad to see them, whatever you want to say, and we're dismissed. Amen.